I am here in Las Vegas, Nevada, sitting in uh, Peter Michel's office. Uh, Peter was the director of Rare Books Special, Special Collections here at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, for 17 years and now is head of exhibits. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Why should the literary tourist visit your library? Well, I think we have some remarkably interesting and unique items here at UNLV Libraries that I I think most people would not be aware of. And it is related to other things that bring people to Las Vegas. Las Vegas is, of course, known as a, first of all, gaming center and also as an entertainment center. It's become sort of an icon of American popular culture. And we collect in traditional ways, from collecting rare books and other materials uh, to non-traditional things. So I think we have here many, many things that people who would not normally think of coming to Las Vegas to visit a library Mm -hmm. would find very interesting. Things they're not going to find anywhere else. Like what? Well, probably our most prominent collection is the gaming, the history of gaming collection. Because our primary mission is to document the history of Las Vegas, gaming is, of course, a critical primary aspect of, of that history. On one hand, there is the history of gaming that obviously predates the history of Las Vegas, which was founded in 1905. Gaming goes back to the existence of mankind. Our collections basically begin documenting gaming with the uh, invention of the printing press and the growth of a mass market in printed materials. So many of our oldest books in the collections are books that were printed from the 17th, 18th century about the kind of games, card games in particular, but other kinds of games that were fairly popular, not just to an aristocratic audience, and we tend to think of card games and whist and that sort of thing as the salon casino games, Monte Carlo, that European uh, resort sort of thing, but also what people played in local taverns and even at home, the sort of popular card games. And because these games were so popular, the literature about these games was also fairly popular. The idea would be, read my book and you'll win these games. Absolutely. First of all, it was sort of instructional literature for any well-bred gentleman or gentlewoman. Not only did you have to know how to dance and how to converse in table manners, you needed to know how the popular card games. This was just what made a civilized, cultured person. So you have that sort of thing, which is basically how... These are the rules of the game. So if you're at... You know, you go to the salon or to the parlor, you'll know how to play the game. So you don't look like a... So you don't look like a root. You don't look like a bumpkin. So out of that then develops uh, the whole literature of, as you aptly put it, how to win the games. Because it's not just something you do, you know, after dinner or in the parlor. It also becomes something you do in order to win money. A good example of this in one of the uh, collections within that collection that is, is actually fairly important, Edmund Hoyle. Everyone's heard of Hoyle's Book of Rules. It is the standard modern encyclopedia for any game providing all the rules. Well, the interesting story about Hoyle was that Edmund Hoyle started out in the 18th century in Britain, and he was basically a tutor to gentlemen and gentlewomen in England. And what he would do is tutor them in how to play the game of whist. This is how he made his living. 
And then he decided that there was a market for this, so he took his notes that he used to teaching individuals how to play whist, and he published it in a pamphlet. Now, how did he publish that? Was it through? He a, went to a, a private bookseller, and in the 18th century, usually the bookseller was the person who actually printed the book. Yeah. Printed the book, put it in covers, and sold it. It became an immediate bestseller, and it went through a series of printings, like many of these did. Uh, it was so popular that it was pirated almost immediately. Within a year of its initial publication, there was a pirated edition. Probably out of Scotland. No, there was another edition out of Scotland, but the pirated one was in England. And so then uh, Hoyle went to another publisher, and it's very interesting because if you look in the books, there's uh, on the verso, in the back of the title page, there's this a letter written by Edmund Hoyle saying, this is the authorized edition, please do not buy any other edition. And he hand-signed every single one to show that it was the authorized edition. And, and now that we're familiar with pirated editions where the author has to actually put out an advertisement and say, don't buy the pirated edition. I remember when Lord of the Rings came out in paperback in the 1960s, there was a pirated edition, and Tolkien put out a thing and say, don't buy that one. This is what happened to Edmund Hoyle. And this went through many, many, many editions, and it was translated into many different languages. And he started out with a treatise on whist. He added one on backgammon, chess, and a variety of other card games until it finally expanded into basically an anthology of rules about every sort of game you could imagine. We have in our collection probably one of the largest collections of every edition of Edmund Hoyle ever printed. Now, that's not something everybody necessarily is into, all the minutiae of all those but we have had a number of scholars, collectors and researchers who come in here because we have all those variant editions. And for rare book people, this is important. The mm. difference between the one, as you say, that was published in Scotland, the one that was published in Dublin, or you know which edition was translated into well, French. the first American. I mean, uh, exactly. And that may have been pirated too. Yes. And yeah. the, we have all the American editions. We have all the editions up to basically the... the the present day. Now, besides Hoyle, there, uh, Hoyle was not the only one doing this. There was a uh, parallel series of treatises and books that was published in France at the same time. Mm -hmm. Same idea. And then there are all sorts of other volumes related to that, not just how to win at the games, but of course, it's always been a moral issue. Is gaming good? Is it bad? You have clerics who are denouncing gaming. That's a whole literature. Publishing pamphlets from the 17th century all the way up to modern times. The devil's work. And the devils, the social evils. In the 19th century, it becomes, you know, yeah. this is causing poverty, this is doing this, this is doing that. And then, say, in the 19th century, you get those people who suddenly discover the history of playing cards and those great collections of playing cards and the catalogs of all the playing card collections in the British Museum, for example. And so we have a whole literature just basically on the history of cards. And So, so books that would uh, would be catalogs of collections? Yes, catalogs. And I have a couple of those on exhibit. Famous collections of playing cards, profusely illustrated, usually done in large folio volumes, color printed. They're beautiful volumes. Yeah. What about, you know, you talk about the different editions of Hoyles. That would be sort of interesting to trace how the rules might have changed over the years. Especially into the 19th century and into the 20th century, of course, as whist morphed into bridge, mm -hmm. and how they were adapted for, you know, you play for two people, four people, eight people. 
and how it is adapted to the social circumstances in which these games are being played. Yeah. You know, whether it is in a small, in aristocratic private club like a casino, or if it's a common game that's being played in taverns or at home. Yeah. And you find this sort of, this literature of, of card game, it goes beyond, you know, the professional gambler and those sorts of things. It's, it's literally a common parlor game for middle-class Americans, for yeah. example. You know, it's the sort of book any American would have on their bookshelf. So basically we're looking at uh, how to play the game, that's one sort of set, then there's how to win at playing the yes. game. I would assume then <laughs> that the more successful books in that category would be the ones that have some sort of insight that actually does help you win, or maybe not? That's a very interesting question. How effective are these? The, the modern analogy is the How to Win at Blackjack. All those systems books, either it's um, horse betting or playing poker, Blackjack for some reason seems suitable for the quote-unquote systems. Yeah, it's all uh, about probability. Yeah, it's all about probability. Well, and that's a whole other, as an aside, that's another whole field that we also have, the whole the science of mathematics and the development of the modern science of probability, which is behind the games, of course. And now, you know, casinos use all that kind of statistical mathematical analysis to adjust the odds and all the, all that other thing. There's a book that's called The Book on Games of Chance, published back in the Renaissance. Does that does that ring a bell? Jerome, I can't read my own writing here, but... Uh, Cardano? That's probably who it is, yeah. Cardano was an interesting individual. He was basically a mathematician, and like many people of that time, uh, dabbled in all sorts of fields. Mathematics was his primary uh, field in which he he was one of the earliest pioneers in the development of the laws of chance and probability, mm -hmm. and he wrote treatises on that. He was also an inveterate gambler, compulsive gambler, yeah. won and lost several fortunes. So not only do you have his treatises on the laws behind gambling, you also have a very famous volume we have, have a very early edition of his autobiography because he was not just the scientist, but he was the compulsive gambler. Well, they were driven, they drove each other. Yes, exactly, yeah. because here is a man who thought he understood the system behind it. And it's always interesting to see people who come in here, uh, obviously are coming to Las Vegas to gamble, who will come in here to do research and often will spend weeks, days, looking, reading all of our how to, how our blackjack systems books. I've never heard back from them whether or not is it, it, Which how successful yeah. it is. Yeah. Part of that is, no, is anyone going to admit they lost or they didn't do it right or whatever, but yeah. that would be an interesting thing to find out. How effective are these yeah. and how well do they actually work? The, the kind of person who is attracted to gambling I mean, there's there's Dostoevsky's yes. The Gambler. Uh, I guess you would have... Yes, if I, and I'll show you when yeah. we go... Uh, the, we, I mean, we don't have an original in Russian version, but no. we have any number version. of editions of that. Yeah. The literature of gaming. You mentioned Dostoevsky, because The Gambler is one of the most famous, but 
the literature, the fictional literature, yeah. where gambling is a primary, either moving the plot or usually character development. I mean, it's almost a cliche, that story of the rise and the fall of the gambler, usually young aristocrat who squanders his family's inheritance and ends up in poverty or in the insane asylum. Morality. Play. It is exactly yeah. it. It's a morality play. And there is much literature that sort of follows that as well as uh, novels that are set within the context of, like, Las Vegas, where uh, groupings of characters you would find in, in a casino, those sort of marginal, transient people that make an interesting sort of story of, of bringing together these sorts of groups of people and, and what happens, you know, to the cliches of the private detective story to, with all the cliches of that kind of fiction. Could you give us some titles? Casino Royale. Uh, you mentioned the Dostoevsky, The Gambler. Yeah. Many people may remember the title Gambler, The Gambler more from the more modern movie that was made with James Caan. Uh, and we actually have a copy of the screenplay out there, which was simply an adaption of the Dostoevsky story, only set in California. So, yeah, because what you could do in this collection is you could read a translation of Dostoevsky's original story. You could watch the film, and you can read the screen. You could actually look at the screenplay and how the script writers adapted the story. And also interesting to to look at a screenplay and realize how little is actually written down from what you actually see on the screen. I mean, that's a whole other interesting yeah. story, but yeah. uh, we do have uh, some screenplays of films that were basically based on you know stories around gaming. You know that's another area that we collect because that's our particular niche: mm-hmm. popular literature, pulp fiction set in or about Las Vegas. You know, and also there's that all, whole other subgenre of the mob and organized crime and their relationship a to Las Vegas and b with the gambling. And so that's a whole nother field in which we sort of collect both fiction and nonfiction, as well as prostitution, which yeah. is another one of you. You're talking about, you know, the social vices associated with... Sin City. Exactly, yeah. exactly. As it plays out in popular culture and popular literature and film and all those sorts of things. Not just and also as alcohol, it, too, of course. Alcohol. I mean, it's very closely connected. Yes. All those yeah. things that, you know, provide... Entertainment. Escapism. Escapism, fantasy, all those things you do when you're here. You're a businessman here for a convention. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to move a bit past that, I'm reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And, of course, he's stoned out of his head the whole time. He makes the analogy between that and how crazy people are who come here. Yes. Typically, the ones that you'll see there, just like zombie-like, sitting in front of these machines. That's just as frightening as being on an acid trip. Yeah, the experience, the phenomena of, you know, what goes on in a casino for 24 hours a day. Uh, If you want to really be depressed, go in in the morning and see the people, A, who are either had got up and that's what they're doing to a who have been there all night. I always find it depressing because when I see people who are just sitting at a machine, just staring at a machine, and they have a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other. Yeah. I can't imagine. They don't look like they're happy and having no, a good time. No, no they're, they're, uh, it's not, they're not in control, right. are they? Right, right. I mean, do you collect the pathology of gambling? 
We have a, we're sort of developing a collection with problem gaming, research collections of material covering the pathology, the medical uh, aspects of it. But since so much of that is, is either in the field of psychology or medicine, which is very, very specialized, we tend not to collect that as comprehensively as we collect other areas. Let me shift gears then and look at some of the authors, publishers, series that might be interesting to collect on a variety of different levels. I know that's a big question there, but we come here, we see your collection, and we were, we're particularly keen on books that have these beautiful, colorful images of cards, let's say. Mm-hmm. Is there a publisher that specialized in this sort of thing that that we could go and hunt down ourselves for our own collection? Not really. I mean, we talked about Hoyle, an author who was publishing over, you know, a couple hundred years. And, and often for a collector, it's like, I want everything done by either one person or published by, by one person. And so you can sort of identify individuals. Cardano, for example, famous gamblers or crime stories, you know, sort of London underworlds in the 19th century, which was, again, almost a variety of popular culture. Um, I mean, because a lot of it was published in, like, magazines in the 19th century, like Sherlock Holmes stories. You have stories of the gambler who ended up murdering his mistress. It's almost like a subject area that you could focus on. You know, there is, as far as I know, no publisher that has for any period of time, specialized in in what I would call the literature of it. The idea, though, of yeah, collecting is pulp fiction that deals yes. with gambling would be kind of fun. Yeah, often we'll just do uh, a check with Amazon, and all you do is doing keyword search or any sort of Google search uh, or American book collectors' websites where you're crossing dealers. And now it's so easy to do basic keyword subject searches. So if, and the more specific you are, the better you're going to get. But there are easy ways to put together lists of Las Vegas fitch, fiction broken down however you want to do it. So, yeah. you know, you don't you don't need arcane knowledge about individual publishers or printers. You can basically do it now using Google. And I'm not a collector, and it was interesting because... Uh, you I'm, are a collector on behalf of... I am a collector on behalf of an institution. <laughs> so you want a, sort of a comprehensive resource for yes. that field. You want to understand it. You want to provide a resource for others to understand it. You just don't buy it to uh, make money. Right. And, or to sell it. I mean, collectors collect books for a variety yes. of reasons. Some and of those really is, unfortunately, something that often yeah. And often, count. I mean, because we had this sort of interchange about you know the fan, the first edition. Many collectors like first editions, yes. and how sophisticated it can get trying to find the true first mm-hmm. edition, mm-hmm. and why collectors are interested in that. Yeah. Now, for me, from my institutional point of view, we don't collect first editions. That doesn't mean anything. You collect to us. every edition. We right? would collect every edition, yeah. whether it's the first edition or the second edition. I mean, it, for us, as a somebody studying those editions, it is important to know the difference between the first edition and the various printings of the first edition. But yeah. that's not how we necessarily go after uh, collections. But a lot of it is you want to be able to have something you can get, like a complete, I want all of these. However I'm defining my collection, I want as many of them as I can get. The other area where we cross over, many times we are acquiring 
collections from private collectors. Yeah, they're doing the work for And uh, our gaming collection is a good example. There was a collector in California named Robert Taxi, T-A-X-E, who collected not just gaming materials but all sorts of things. And what he would do is he would build this collection and then he would sell it. And in like 1995, we purchased this sizable collection from him. He had, and, and talk about the breadth of this, I mean, it was from early editions to, of Hoyle, including British periodical literature from, you know, the 19th century, where you would have all sorts of either short stories or advertisements and all this sort of stuff. It was a great private collection. Now, he was not an expert. I mean, he was no. not a scholar or a professor. He was just a collector. But because he was fairly comprehensive, and I won't go into how ethical some of his dealings were, because I've heard some stories about it, but as, long, you know, as far as we're concerned, he was an honest dealer. So you know, we got the collection. We didn't ask too many questions how he got individual titles. But in many ways, most libraries originally established, I mean, the Bancroft Library mm-hmm. at, up at Berkeley, Bancroft, he, he was a collector. Huntingdon, you know, the Rockefellers. These are people who were private collectors who then donate their private collections to establish libraries. So That's why I, I, I do like to focus on this practical collecting angle, just precisely for, because of what you said. Even though, you know, it seems that times are pretty lean for uh, libraries like yes. yours, uh, this is one hopes and prays is... It ebbs and flows, and there will be a time when money may be more uh, available, and you can reward the collector. Sure. The thing is, you don't have to spend enormous amounts of money to satisfy yourself as a collector. I mean, you can choose to collect something where you're not having to spend. Or where someone hasn't gone before. Exactly. And it's something that should have some sort of a personal appeal to you, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean you necessarily have to collect what everybody else is collecting. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recommend somebody try and go out and collect Jane Austen or James (laughs) Joyce or any of those other things. But from your perspective, how about the area of gambling? What do you think would be a kind of an an interesting, not-too-expensive aspect of this field to go after and collect. If you just wanted to uh, focus on one particular type of gaming, like sports betting. Now, that's not something you would think you would go out and spend a lot of money on 17th century rare books about sports betting, but it is a burgeoning field, and there is a lot of literature there. Horse racing, or blackjack, you know, the sociology, or the pulp fiction attached to it. Find an author that wrote a series of novels about gaming. Dick Francis, for example. We have all of Dick Francis. Wasn't he a jockey to start Yes, he was a jockey. It's mostly about horse racing. It's like you find a niche. You can find a niche where you want to collect as comprehensively as you can, but you can pick up individual titles for not enormous amounts of money. But there's, again, just sort of getting back to the people that are involved in gambling. Uh, we talked about Dostoevsky. Montaigne was a oh, yes. was quite a gambler. Uh, any connection with him in the collection? I'm sure we have titles by him. And Descartes? Yes. Casanova? Casanova, yes. It was part of aristocratic, the fast lane life. It was the jet set. This is what the jet set did. Gambling was very much a part of what they did, you know, from Tom Jones to, you know, any of those 
the yeah. upper classes. And inevitably, somewhere in the story, in the family, ba- the backstory for the family, there's going to be somebody who lost the family fortune <laughs> through gambling. <laughs> or the ne'er-do-well son or the ne'er-do-well nephew. <laughs> yeah, even in the story of John Adams. I don't know if you watched the series of John Adams. John Adams had a son who was an inveterate gambler and alcoholic. Even the best families, you know, and it was, you know, it's almost a cliche. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one of those literary things. And also uh, Wild Bill Hickok. Oh, yes. Killed during Killed, the poker game. That's right. And, the, and that, the, that's the, a whole... Man's hand. Yes, the whole genre of the Western literature because mm-hmm. of, you know, the gambling in the saloon sort yeah. of thing, which very much has colored Las Vegas's popular imagery. Las Vegas was never really a western frontier town with cowboys, although we like to dress up like cowboys and talk about ourselves as cowboys in a western town. But, we, you know, what it was, it was western gambling. It was a very much manufactured city, Yes, right? yes, it was very self-conscious. One of the, the, the first hotels on the Strip was the last frontier, and a lot of those were self-conscious recreations of that sort of western... And and not just the gambling, but the entertainment, the you know the dance hall girls, you know all of that sort of thing. So, areas that that are ripe for digging into. Sure, endless possibilities. I mean, because it's such a complex phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I mean, from you know the pathologies to simply entertainment and all the things that go on around the poker table. The World Series of Poker, you know, yeah. which is a huge thing now. But even just going downtown, and I mean, a lot of the buildings are new, mm-hmm. but wouldn't it be fun to get a collection of books that featured the original casinos? Wow, well, and there are a number of picture books about Las Vegas, and, and any of those sort of popular histories of Las Vegas tend to be the histories of the hotels and the casinos. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we actually, there were a number of years ago, we had... Uh, a student did a survey of uh, carpeting in casinos, casino carpeting. <laughs> well, and there's a whole science behind the design of casinos. You know, as you know, the cliche, it's a, it's a labyrinth. There are no clocks. There's, you can never find the exit because they don't want you to exit, you know, because we collect architecture. I remember talking to an architect about, you know, how much time they would spend deciding interior design, what color to yeah. put near the slot machines. Which slot machines do you put on the outside to draw them into inside? I mean, there's a whole science behind gambling and people's behaviors. And, you know, so many of these slot machines now are based on, like, either some sort of popular game, a popular TV show, or some sort of aspect of popular culture. And using that as the gimmick to have people play games. So it's not not just gambling as in winning money, but it's game playing the whole science of games, what is the psychology of games, why yeah. do people want to play games. And also the consumer psychology behind basically trying to get people to spend their money. Exactly. It's marketing, it's yeah, yeah. a lot of things that go into running a successful resort. 
What about the materials, again, from all of these casinos? Things like uh, the brochures that they might have put out. Uh, do you get into that? At yeah, all? we collect what we would call the ephemera. A lot of it is simply their advertising and marketing. And what we have done in the past is simply you get on their mailing list, so they mail you everything. Also, private collectors will collect, you know, from swizzle sticks to napkins. <laughs> you know, we have boxes and boxes of the plastic coin cups. <laughs> we have dust. We have packs of cards. We have all sorts of stuff from the casinos. Menus from the casino restaurants. So a, a, a literary tourist could come in here and basically get a, a really good feel for how this place was established and, yes. and evolved. Yeah, over time. The, the the history of the history of the building, the history of its context within the city to what it looked like inside to the photographic record the to, casino, the, mobs, I guess. to the mob who might might may or may not have been associated yeah. with it plus all that sort of uh, yellow journalism you know the Ave de Damaris you know the Greenfelt jungle that whole sort of expose literature of the mob associations and then as you say the entertainers uh, Frank Sinatra yes, and yes the Martin entertainers and, the, and you know Pack. the story of you know, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin going out into the casino and dealing, which they didn't really do that much. But mm-hmm. uh, And also, you know, it's a modern business in a big international industry. We document what is happening with MGM. We document what is happening with Caesars in terms of a big business. Their financial reports, their annual reports, how they're doing on the stock market. That, in that sense, we it's a modern business collection because these are big international businesses too. Mm-hmm where they are opening casinos, where they are trying to open casinos, what's going on in Atlantic City, what's going on in Macau, how is that affecting Las Vegas. Indian gambling, another thing. How is that playing out? How does that affect the market in Las Vegas? You mean the native Indian? Yes, uh, Indian casinos in California or, well, they're everywhere. They're in, you know, Connecticut. One thing that's fascinating, too, to me, I've recently learned that in China, they're actually developing cities that are replicas of Paris and London and and, and I imagine Las Vegas as well, which is kind of, you know, yes. kind of a kitschy... Well, Macau, yes. So you have that blueprint in a way. Yeah, it's very interesting. You, I mean, you can look at it from any number of ways, either simply from the expansion of the the, the big gaming industries, which are basically headquartered here, and how Steve Wynn or Adelson have moved into other markets or even other markets in the United States. But also, I mean, even going back to, you know, early 60s and 70s when first Lake Tahoe was being developed heavily, Atlantic City was being developed heavily, the architects and the architecture... Because this is a whole, you know, a sub-specialty in architecture, the design of the big resort, where you have integrated casino, hotel towers, recreation, showrooms, traffic patterns, all this sort of thing. And the architects who worked in Las Vegas made their name in Las Vegas were then building the casinos in Tahoe, building them in Atlantic City in Australia. And it's very interesting because we have an extensive architecture collection. Blueprints of the... Blueprints of the buildings. Blueprints of the building. Most of the, a lot of the, not not the current ones, uh, but the ones from like the 60s, 50s up to about the 80s. Students, architecture students from London, from Germany, from Australia, France, coming here to study 
the architecture of Las Vegas resorts. Why? Because they're building these other places. And yes, the model, the template, is Las Vegas. So it is the Las Vegasation of... (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, it hasn't really worked all that well in Atlantic City. Just finally, uh, the practical aspects of visiting you here Mm -hmm. hopefully whetted our... Appetite. Everybody's going to want to run down That's here. That's right. So what, what is the procedure? We, we, would, we would come in the door. We would, let's say we're, I'm interested in looking at mm-hmm. uh, some of the ephemera of, of, of the early casinos, promotional literature, what, what the buildings look like, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, you, you could find your way onto campus and good luck finding a parking place. <laughs> it's actually the most valuable real estate in Las Vegas is a parking space at UNLV. But special collections, and I always need to emphasize this to people, it is open to everybody. You do not have to be a student or a faculty here. It's There's open. no card. There is no card. You do yeah. not need a card to come in here. We do have our hours are more restricted than the rest of the library, so it's usually a good thing to check our hours. In the summer now, we're only open to 9 to 5, and we are not open on weekends, which is another thing I always want to emphasize to people who are coming out of town. We are not open on weekends. Uh, we may change that, but for now we aren't. Uh, We do have evening hours during the regular year on Tuesdays and Thursdays, which helps people who are coming after work. The procedure is basically you register, you basically fill out a brief form, and this is not intrusive, you know, we're not asking you for your social security number, but because security and preservation are an important part of that, we want to make sure if we've collected all this interesting stuff, it's going to stay here. And so we like to say we're, we're not just serving the people who are here today, we're serving the people who are hopefully going to be here in 100 years. So we don't want people walking off with our How to Win a Blackjack book. So there is a fairly brief form to fill out, and that's essentially all you do. And then we always have someone at the desk, and that person's job is to help you find whatever it is you want. Most of our collections are in closed stacks, which means not a browsing library. I mean, we do have a number of things in the reading room that we we talked about that you can basically browse. We will let you go into the reading room and touch the oldest books on the shelf. You can pull them off the shelf, actually, and sit down and read them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a nice thing about about. Uh, our environment, which we'll not find in every rare book room. Most of the collections, though, you'll have to identify it somehow, and that's what the person at the desk will help you do. If you're looking for uh, brochures from the El Rancho Hotel, for example, you would just ask for it, and you would fill out, we'd help you fill out the call slip, and the staff person brings you the collection out to the radio room, and you sit down and you look at it. And people are free to look at any collection they wish. You know, and even if you're just a casually interested in, and we get a lot of people here who are on vacation, and they just stop by, and they sort of like, understand you have this great gaming collection. Can I see it? <laughs> have you got a week? And it's all online on the, on the catalog. So, you know, A, you can find it through the Internet, actually. Uh, but, you know, we can help you go through the, the catalog if you're looking for specific time. Like, I want to see what you have on horse betting. And you're only 10 minutes, not even. Oh, yeah, 10 minutes from the strip. It's very easy to get to. We try to present a fairly welcoming environment to people who walk in. And, you know, again, I emphasize most of the people who are here are not esoteric researchers. You don't have to be a professor to feel welcome here. We're here for anybody and everybody. Well, thanks so much for telling us about the place. Well, happy to help you. I've been speaking with Peter Michel, who is the head of exhibits 
at the Special Collections Library of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas campus. Thanks again. Thanks, Nigel.